session with Dr. Farid Holakwi. Good evening. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tulaku, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Student number to call in, 310-441-0555. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at then each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Let's get to the books of the week. The book of the week for this week is The Guermantes Way by Marcel Proust. I'm not sure if I'm saying that right. The Guermantes Way, Marcel Proust. This is the third volume out of seven of In Search of Lost Time by Marcel Proust. Actually, I think the I read the second one more than a year ago, so it's been a while. So looking forward to reading this one and slowly getting through all seven of them. Um, it's interesting even in just looking over the synopsis of the last book, I was transported to, in my memory, the locations I had created or the book helped me create for the book. It's quite interesting that you can really go back into a different world or it takes you to a different world when you're reading a piece of fiction. So that was kind of interesting for me. It was like revisiting an old place, but the old place only ever existed in my own mind. So looking forward to reading that and sharing it with you next week. The book of the week from last week that I will talk about tonight is What is Life by Paul Nurse. What is Life? Five Great Ideas in Biology. And so this book is in part history as Paul Nurse, who is a Nobel Prize winning scientist, goes through the history of some of these five great ideas that he describes to help understand this question, which can sound simple, but is yet so complex. What is life? In some ways, he talks about how we might think, well, it's like you know it when you see it type of a thing. But really, how do we define what makes life? How do we differentiate between things that are living and non-living? Sometimes it might seem easier than at other times. For example, is a virus living or not? I actually have, remember hearing that for a long time. Um, do we consider it alive or not based on certain principles? So he does go through these great five great ideas in biology, try to bring them all together to show how they can connect to um, help explain some of his thoughts on what is life. As he says, he has taken this title from others who have written books with the same title, um, Erwin Schrodinger wrote a book in 1944 with the same title, What is Life? And so in that way, he's paying homage to that by titling it the same way and trying to tackle the same great question. And so he, these five great ideas that he goes through, the first one is the cell, which as the subtitle of that chapter is Biology's Atom, meaning that as far as we can understand, and there's a whole theory called cell theory that revolves around this, the smallest living thing we can understand, or when we look at living things, they're all either one cell, like bacteria is unicellular, or it's made up of many cells, but basically that cells are like the building block of life to a degree. And so um, each chapter talks about these great ideas and he adds different stories, but also talks about the different scientists 
and the the journey that has come about as they found um, answers to these questions or discovered these things like what is a cell and and what does that exactly mean so that's the first chapter the next one is called the gene and this is about how th- information is passed on generation to generation which also has an interesting history about how DNA was discovered and things of that sort but help you understand well what does that even mean how do we pass on genes from one generation to the next which is necessary for life or he is describing as necessary for life then he gets into the third great idea evolution by natural selection which the subtitle is chance and necessity and looking at how natural selection evolution has shaped life or is necessary for life and in a way he says it's necessary to have natural selection and even if we find life on other planets or other life forms he thinks they will also have gone through this similar process in getting ready for the show, I was curious just to see some people's thoughts, other scientists or thinkers on this topic, because my whole life, it's been just very clear evolution by natural selection has been almost like dogma that it's it goes a certain way. But I have heard and read some things here and there of different, it's not alternatives as if natural selection isn't somewhat true but that there's more to it than that or the ways that we saw natural selection as being the only way of evolution or that life has formed in the ways that it has that it might be more complex than that but nonetheless um, that might be better for another time but just another reminder of the complexity of the world that of course we live in and trying to understand it and also that we can understand things within a certain framework we almost have to we also have to recognize the limitations to that framework as well Um, The fourth chapter is life as chemistry, looking at how everything that makes life and enables life to happen is based on chemical properties and reactions and things like um, ATP, adenosine triphosphate, I think, or adenotriphosphate. But nonetheless, that's essentially the source of power for almost all living creatures is this molecule, Um, but other parts of this process of biochemistry or how biology helps to make uh, or chemistry helps to create all the things that we experience. And then the fifth great idea is life as information. And so he's using that term information can be used in many ways. Of course, genes themselves and how things are passed down, that's a big form of information, that genetic information is passed from one generation to the next that's that's critical but even information in the sense of how we survive and how we interact with the world that we're always getting information from the outside world that then affects what we do internally and how we act with that and that affects life of course in making life possible so that life as information or understanding how all these things come together can be also of course critically important And then before turning to the last chapter where he again gets back to this question, what is life, there's a chapter called Changing the World. And in this chapter, he gives some thoughts also, what you can consider some advice on how we can approach the world or recognizing that we change the world, that we, he shares his own experience, um, recognizing he had had a heart issue and had to have surgery for that heart issue that likely saved his life and as he says he wouldn't be writing this book that we were 
that I was reading or that you would read if you read this book if it wasn't for that ability for doctors to intervene to save his life or to prolong his life. And so that we're constantly changing our world and even things like agriculture and farming and things like that have had huge impacts in the world and other things as well. Um, but also recognizing the responsibility in that or being aware of what we are doing and not doing to affect that. Things like even climate change and how we are negatively impacting the planet and we have to take action or change actions for that and look at even new ways of, of dealing with the world to make that happen. Um, or e even things like debates over genetically modified foods and how there could be, a, he mentioned something called golden rice, which using a bacteria that they put into the gene of the rice allows for there to be more vitamin A in that rice. And I think he said something like 250 million young children are deficient in vitamin A, and this might be able to help them. But there are some organizations very much against genetically modified foods um, just because they're genetically modified and don't let even some of these um, things go forward as far as trials and things to figure out how helpful it could be or how it affects the environment. And I've heard these debates before over genetically modified foods. Um, GMOs, I think they're often called in the United States. He's a British writer, so I think I, he said GMs. Um, and how I, even when you hear that genetically modified food or genetically modified organism, sounds very... Um, so it sounds bad. It sounds like it's going to do something bad to you when you hear genetically modified. But often, really, so much of what we use is genetically modified. And so I'm not saying anything genetically modified is good. But we also have to be careful not to get into something uh, called a naturalistic fallacy when we get so convinced or so connected to the idea that something quote-unquote natural is good and always better and we shouldn't mess with it. But again, going back to this chapter, he's talking about how we change the world very often what we do is we make changes and make things unnatural. He had several veins or arteries moved from parts of his body and then um, connected to his heart to bypass the artery or veins that weren't working. That's very unnatural. The natural world doesn't do that. Yes, they were using his um, parts of his body, but still it's very unnatural. Or we use pacemakers for other people who have heart issues, which is an unnatural thing, putting a device in the body, but it's quite literally saving people's lives and prolonging them and making them much better. So we always have to be careful not to get too caught up in that. It's not to say natural things don't have some value and meaning, and we always should take that into account too, but just having a balanced debate about it to recognize to not be afraid of something just because of the name or the title, for example, gen genetically modified. He didn't get that far into it, as I'm explaining here. It was just uh, maybe one page or so on that. But looking at the ways and being aware of how we interact with the world, that yes, we want to be very careful and mindful of what we're doing. I think a lot of what humanity has done is gone forward without thinking when we look at how we've affected the environment and burned so many fossil fuels and done things that have caused damage that at some estimates might be irreversible. It was just advancing without thinking or what looked like advancement without looking at all the consequences. So I think we have to be very mindful that when we change the world, we shouldn't be opposed to that, of course, but we have to be very careful to recognize it doesn't mean always good just because we find something that feels like 
and advancement. Nowhere might that be clearer than things like the atomic bomb, which was an advancement to figure out how to do that, but it quite literally brought about a very easy possibility of the extermination of all humans or killing all humans on planet Earth because of that advancement. So there's always going to be moral and ethical issues that come up when we consider science and its advancements and how we advance. Um, And then, as I mentioned, the last chapter, he comes back to what is life and trying to understand what is life and even how we might want to encounter um, other life forms. But it's quite interesting. He does get back into this explanation or conversation of how did life even come about? You know, there's some theories, of course, we can't understand them or, or prove them. It happened maybe three and a half or four billion years ago here on Earth. But how did that even come to be? And that was also, to me, an interesting um, discussion and hearing him describe how things we think they could have happened, but we don't really know. And how might that contribute to what we, we think now about ourselves and encountering other life forms? He didn't talk about uh, much uh, treating other animals in a certain way, but he do feel that there was a way that he was talking about the interconnectedness of living things and how we should take that into account. But um, to me, that was interesting, just looking at this simple question, but it's so hard to explain. What is life? And, and then what do we do with that information? We don't have a solid answer that all scientists would agree with uh, or agree on, but it could be good to explore and express these ideas to understand better what we think about life and how we value it, which I might touch on on this show, if not another time. I'm just looking at, we might have a hard time exactly defining life, but we, we have some understanding of what we consider alive. And then how do we treat or what do we do with uh, beings that we see as as living beings? Because at the end of the day, that's often what we consider a human value, that we value life, human life and other life. And then because of that, treated in a certain way. But anyway, this book for me was interesting as far as looking at some of the scientific advancements. You know, I, I like to read books in different disciplines just to add to my own knowledge and the variety of things that I get to, to study. What was interesting is in this book, he also mentioned that human beings have about 30 trillion cells in us. Um, but in the last book I read, Gut also mentioned that same exact fact, one that I don't think I'd encountered in all the books I had read um, these past few years, but two books in a row had that same fact. And he did say not that there was 100 trillion as it was said in, um, I don't know if I just said billion, but trillion, um, that there's more cells that are not human in us. He didn't say a specific number, but he said it is more than the number of human cells. Again, this fascinating fact to think about what makes us us is not just our human cells, it's life forms that we think are not us, but that does allow for us to function. But that was the book, What is Life? by Paul Nurse. Let's go to our first commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So in the first segment, I was talking about the book, What is Life? by Paul Nurse, who is a a scientist and actually um, he's done some work on the cell and cell cycle and things of that nature. I think that's actually what he got his Nobel Prize for. Um, He also talked about how he studied yeast cells for a long time. Um, and recently some of his work has been vital in informing cancer research for cancer treatments. And so he said himself in the book, he would have never imagined that his work on yeasts would 
somehow contribute to cancer research, but another example of the interconnectedness of things and how as science advances, we don't always know the exact practical applications that will come down the line, but the better we understand things and learn about things, um, it does inform us in ways that we don't quite imagine. And so this this comes back to a question that came up recently, which book, I forgot which book it was, but the practicality of science and recognizing it. Sometimes it won't be so practically clear, I think it was the book on curiosity, um, what, we're, what we're getting at. And so in this segment, I wanted to talk a bit about science in general and discussions and debates that come up regarding science or scientific issues uh, or even the ways we talk about scientific issues or issues that might be related to, let's say, vaccines and, and those types of topics. Um, that, for example, people will say things like, I trust the science or I don't trust the science or, or you have to trust the science. Um, and these conversations, like most conversations these days, become very, very polarized and it's more about proving that you're right and good and and even moral and the other side is stupid and bad and immoral and all sorts of things. And the nuance often gets lost in these types of discussions because you get more and more polarized. You have to believe your side is completely right. The other side is completely wrong. You don't want to give an inch because if you give an inch and say there's some kind of nuance, then the other side will take that and make it seem like you you doubt when they don't doubt. So unfortunately, we see this happening more and more. Social media is a huge contributor to this because ideas that are extremely certain and strong and even fueled with anger at the other side and how stupid they are, those types of messages are going to get much more attention and spread and then they become much more part of the mainstream when they really are not mainstream at all and they're very imbalanced. So we see this on on both sides of the discussion. So I wanted to talk a bit about both sides of this, this discussion or these discussions and topics related to science, even this, this type of thing of I trust the science um, or what that even means or I don't trust the science or, or people will sometimes say, well, how can you not trust the science, you know, for example, they say, well, do you not believe in gravity or something like that? And they make these kinds of arguments. Um, the challenge is that what we're trying to do is understand the world. And then if we're talking about uh, the science of some topic, understand something, for example, even I mentioned vaccines, we're trying to understand the vaccine. And there's so many components when we're looking at something like a vaccine, how much, how helpful it is, which has several components of prolonging life, saving lives, whose lives will be saved and affected by getting it, not getting it. If you don't get it, but other people do, how will you be affected? If you do get it and other people don't, how will you be affected? And then, of course, side effects and what can happen if um, you do take the vaccine and who's more at risk to side effects, and then who's more at risk if they don't take it, period. If we don't have the vaccines at all, what's going to happen? So there's a lot of different layers to the conversation. Um, but again, it becomes boiled down to, do you trust it or not? Is it good or bad? And, and the answer is we don't really, we can't really know um, for sure. And that's one of the things we have to accept. We're trying to understand better, but we'll never have a full understanding or the absolute truth on anything. So 
something I hear from people on the I trust science side is they turn it into almost like a dogma that this is the science, so it has to be true end of discussion. And that's not accurate because the whole point of science is that it's always evolving. The book is never fully closed. We have a best understanding at a certain time, but it's never a closed discussion that that wouldn't be science. It has to be ongoing. So to say it in that way, uh, to me, is not accurate or not even looking at what science is to say that it's we know for sure. And this is actually why even most scientists won't say something is proven because they know that that somehow is implying that we know something for sure or there's no other way for it to be different than what we think or whatever the theory or things of that might be. So, but what the other side tends to do, the other side of this type of debate, which is the against science side or the side that's more doubting, is that they take this uncertainty, which is inevitable in everything we try to understand about life, and they take that as proof that science doesn't know anything, that it's all wrong, and there's nothing to see there, nothing to gain from its insights or its understanding or its research, even though practically they're taking advantage of those things all the time. Anything we're using, technology, for example, the phone that they're using to look up the conspiracy theory is going to be made possible by science that people have advanced. So to talk about it in that way also to me is very much missing the point to say that because there are mistakes or because we later find out something that we thought was true wasn't true or the theory completely is wrong or had to be modified or whatever it might be, because of that, we shouldn't listen to anything science has to say or the scientific community has to say. That would be wrong also because I think that also would be missing the point of what it even means to study something, to try to understand something. You never have full understanding. There's no guarantee you of course, have to have mistakes. If you actually found a science where they said there's never been a mistake, you should be very skeptical of that because that wouldn't make sense. That would not be actual science. So if we're looking for science or scientists or scientific theories that are never wrong about anything ever, that's missing the point. And so if you dismiss when you find out there's some inconsistencies or things have proven to be or shown to be not as right as we thought they were, well, then you're throwing the baby out with the bathwater, that you're not recognizing that the advancements that are being made are based on self-correcting principles, which means we're going to get it wrong often and we're going to get better at it. Now, here's another layer to this discussion or how we can look at it, in my opinion, is that What we're doing is, in any given moment, we have to take actions. And whether that's even taking the vaccine or not, that's both an action. Either you're choosing not to take it or choosing to take it. Or let's use this medication over that one. So what's also difficult is science is this ongoing thing and there's advancements. And if you wait five more years, things might change. But not making a decision or waiting for five years itself is taking an action. And so we as human beings, each individually and then also as cultures or societies, countries, cities, whatever the uh, deciding population is we're thinking about, we have to make decisions at any given moment with whatever information is out there. And so this is also challenging, but really to me it brings us to what we want to look at 
is we're deciding to do whatever we know or whatever we best know at the given time that you are doing something. So you get a diagnosis of some medical illness, you ask the doctors and you might ask for a second opinions or you might want to get a few opinions to, to get to a better place to make your decision. But then based on that base, best available information, you make a decision. And it might come fi- you might find out in five years later, one of the treatments you took was not good or had side effects. Or, of course, in five years, they'll have better treatments, but you couldn't wait five years to get started. So you had to take something that was available then. So I think the way to look at science, or when we look at what we're trying to understand about science, is that to trust that this is the best possible explanation we have, or the best information we have, or the best technology we have at this given time. And that also means we're not trusting just individual scientists, but we're trusting a scientific community and a consensus. Because practically on any type of uh, scientific theory, there will be some people that disagree. And so this is also part of science is that you're not going to have a unanimous, everyone sees it exactly the same way. It needs to have some level of diversity of thought and opinions and perspectives. That's part of what allows science to advance, is having the diversity of opinions and perspectives on things. So we need to have that in order for science to advance. So if you say, well, I see some scientists disagree, and that's often what is brought up, is that we find someone who disagrees and people say, see, we can't say this is the truth. And that does make things a little bit complicated because how do we even define a a consensus? So here we also have to then look at people's intentions. And sometimes people can have pure intentions of just trying to understand the science. Sometimes they have some financial motive to prove or to support some other theory, or sometimes they just want to get personally more famous. And yes, if you are a contrarian to some very highly supported scientific theory, you are going to get a good amount of attention because there are people that are always looking for the contrary opinion to sometimes a hurtful degree where they'll like anything that just disagrees with the mainstream, regardless of what the information is in support of it, just because they want to disagree and that gives them some kind of a good feeling or some feeling like I figured it out and other people are just being duped or being sheep to follow what everyone else is saying. So, at any given time, we, I think, are doing our best by trusting the scientific community, which is made up of many different people with many different backgrounds. Even there is support that when we talk about diversity in science, sometimes people think it's just a woke type of mindset, and we're just trying to get you know, people from minority groups to get you know whatever it is, recognition or get into certain positions just for some woke ideology, identity politics. But the research shows us that when you have people with a diversity of backgrounds and perspectives, that leads to a reduction in the biases that we see in the science, or it's less likely to be prone to groupthink and other types of thinking that might miss the biases. We'll never be completely unbiased and 100% objective, but it's an, uh, a value or an ideal that we aspire towards, we try to get closer to. So we're trying to get towards objectivity, knowing we won't be perfectly objective, but we know at times we can look back and see where we had big blind spots 
to missing what now might seem obvious but was not seen as a um, block of the objectivity or subjective types of looking at things and seeing them in the wrong way. But the more diversity we have in the people looking at a problem or studying some type of a situation, the biases get more reduced and they become less. So we create scientific communities and science itself has to be open to critique and criticism to advance. The scientific community, the scientific institutions, the scientific method itself is part of this science. It's within it. It's not something from the outside that has been handed to us from above and now we can just be certain that whatever we're doing is right. We have to be constantly evaluating even the way science is being done and the scientific community does things, how we um, do research, promote research, what research gets attention, what doesn't, and how that affects things. There's so many factors that impact how science progresses or the ways that it progresses and, and doesn't progress, and we have to be very mindful of that as well, and the scientific community has to be scientific in how it even does all of that. But if we have that community, then we will do best trusting the science as much as possible. doesn't mean it's always going to lead us in the right direction. And we're not even trusting individual scientists. We're trusting the overall scientific community to look at the people studying geology and devoting their lives to it. That community we will trust when it comes to decisions related to geology. People studying cancer research and a specific type of cancer, we will trust their opinion at any given time based on what they've accumulated as their knowledge and their best understanding and their consensus of what's happening and what treatments are possible and what is the best thing to do in a certain circumstance. In 20 years, will we recognize that many of the things they recommended to us were not quite right? Absolutely. Beyond a shadow of a doubt that some things will be shown to be not so right. Some might be a little bit tweaked. Some might be completely wrong. That's just how science is and how our understanding of the world is and how complex these things are that we are studying, that we can't know them best. But that is our best information at a given period of time. And the analogy I use for that, that we're going to our best information at a given period of time is you're on a plane and before the plane takes off, they say, who do you want to pilot the plane? And you say, well, I want the person with the most experience flying planes, who has been a pilot of, in general, of this type of plane, has experienced many things. I want that person to fly the plane, or let's say two people, pilot and co-pilot, to fly the plane. Are those pilots perfect? No. Have they made mistakes before? Yes. Can they make more mistakes? Absolutely. But you would likely think these are my best chance of getting to my destination safely, so I'll go with them, even though it's possible they won't be the best person in this given circumstance. It's possible someone with a little less experience is better than the people with the most experience. But we go with what is our best understanding or best knowledge at that time. That, to me, makes the most sense for us to do. So we Go with the most experienced pilot, the one who is best at that. And when it comes to looking at different issues, yes, we are aware that there are things you have to be aware of, biases. Science has a lot of things to figure out and continue to work on, but there's no way to know for sure that there's something better than what's out there. So we trust the people that are there 
making the decisions based on the information they have, the years they've dedicated to studying it, and their overall consensus as a community. So I think we have to be careful not to get into these black and white discussions of just trust the science or you don't, or it's always right or it's always wrong. It's neither of those things. It's the best understanding of what we have at this given time. And I think we do best to follow that as much as possible. Again, that doesn't mean blindly, but when you don't know something, the best thing you can do is to acknowledge that, your own ignorance of something, and to go to the people that have the most experience and expertise in that field, and you trust them, and there's really not much else you can do at that point. Um, but just some thoughts on science, our discussions of science, and, and how we look at this issue of trusting or not trusting, and going with what's the best at a given time, knowing that it's always imperfect, but it's the best that we can do at that moment. Let's go to our last commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So as I mentioned when I was talking about the book, What is Life? I wanted to talk a bit about the value of life or even values related to life. Um, and in some ways, it's a bit more philosophical in some aspects. Um, but, you know, when we think about life and death, we recognize often how limited our understanding is or that these concepts can be so abstract in a way that it's hard for us to, to comprehend. When someone dies, we even have these challenges of understanding. Well, how, how does that even make sense? They were just here yesterday. I was talking to them. I can even remember what they said, the sound of their voice, and now they're just gone. And it's hard for us to comprehend and process that for some time. Or when we think about our own death, I actually often think about how we think in certain ways about still being alive. That when I'm dead, I want this to happen. But if you're dead, you won't be here to experience it. So you might think if you value something or you think this would be a good thing to happen. But as far as what then happens, or I've talked about, for example, I want to be remembered in a certain way when I'm dead. Uh, of course, you want to live a good life and hopefully do good things, which is why you'd be remembered. So do those things. But how you'll be remembered, you won't be here to experience what people are saying or not saying or how they remember you. The impact of what you do will be felt and can be passed on. But as far as you being remembered or not, that's not something you would experience in any way. But we imagine it of myself. Okay, oh, what would it be like if they were putting up a statue of me or remembering me in this way and that feels good to you now but when you're dead you won't be feeling those things but we can see how um, abstract this can feel to us or hard to comprehend what does that mean because we're thinking of feeling something but we won't be feeling anything in that regard and even whatever you believe in an afterlife usually what people believe in an afterlife things like that won't matter to you if you go to heaven and you're living in this whatever it is experience you're not going to be worried about um, you know, did did they give me credit for this or not? So usually, really, it doesn't make sense to get focused on that or fixated on that. Um, but what we can also think about is that we value life, which, as I talked about in this book, how do we define that? That itself can be an issue, but let's say human life. Uh, I'll maybe leave it at that because it can get even more complicated to think of what does that mean? Because if we value life and then you take an antibiotic, you're killing millions of cells that are alive, these bacteria cells. So is that killing and should that be bad? And uh, then we could look at it as sentient beings, things that we know can feel. Is that something? And 
and you know that's its own discussion. But if we just look at human life, what we can understand about it to me is that we value it, or it's a human value, that we put value on it to preserve human life. And again, where this can get abstract is that the way life is created, that if a, you know that there's a living being, if you know there's a human, we want to take care of them. But if you don't know if they're there, you wouldn't take care of them. Or if a human hasn't been born yet, or we sometimes think, what if this person wasn't born? Or if they had another child? And it's hard to think about these counterfactuals in a way that makes sense. But the bottom line is that we would think, well, when I encounter them, or once they're, if they are alive and I can encounter them and I can help them in some way, or if I see they're suffering, I can help them in some way, I would do it. So let's say you opened up some room and you saw there was children in there that were starving, that were left there. Um, and you think, oh, there's two kids. Okay, I'm going to help these two kids. And then if you find out there's three kids, you're now going to want to help three kids. Not that you only had love enough for two kids or you felt that you would only want to give enough for two kids. You want to help because you saw people were suffering. So we can see we have this value, or I think it is a basic human value, to care about human life when it is there. The counterfactuals can make us very confused. This also comes up with things like abortion, that if this child wasn't born or a child was born, and how would we treat them and what you should do? And I think they are actually um, thorny issues to consider. But most people would then think, well, then if a child is then born, we take care of that child as individuals have that responsibility for their kids, but also as a society. I would hope we do that something that here in the United States we don't do well at all. We have so many debates about uh, abortion um, and the rights there, but we, which I think is something that um, unfortunately we've taken some steps back in this country recently. Uh, However, regardless of where you fall on that debate, taking care of children and people once they're born, that's something we do a very bad job of in the United States when you consider the wealth that we have. And so how we value life, uh, unfortunately, I think is quite sad here in, in the United States that we value the wrong things. We put value on money value rather than human value. And that's very unfortunate, something that I think um, makes the alternatives to capitalism that I'm very hopeful for in the future uh, to take hold. And also the capitalism, a uh, principle of growth being the indicator of good is a problem when you consider we have finite resources in the world. So infinite growth cannot be your goal. Uh, It doesn't make sense. But that also is another discussion related in some way. But I do think that we unfortunately value things in money and dollar amounts much more than human value. And that's really costly. Even this tornado cost, you know, cost $12 billion in damage. And I understand it can talk about the destruction of you know, how powerful it was in force. But if something didn't damage any property, but 50,000 people died or 5,000 people died, that value should be much more significant than the the physical, uh, the costs in in an economic sense. Um, But coming back to life, you know, another thing that had come to my mind is there is this way that although Maybe some nice people don't like to say that different lives should value different should value differently. Um, one way that I think most people can feel this is in this sense that everyone deserves to live a certain length of life or a certain 
even type of life we think people should be uh, taken care of to a degree when we just think of it in a moral sense, but a length of life. Because if I hear the news, if I'm being very honest, and someone says this 98-year-old man died. Now, of course, it could be sad, and you think of this this old man and whoever they are and their contributions, and lots of things might come to my mind. But a very different feeling comes about if someone says a two-year-old died, right? We, we just It just feels wrong, more wrong. And so I know sometimes people will say when someone is grieving, we shouldn't, you know, value deaths and or think that someone should you know be more sad than someone else and there's lots of factors that go into that but i think it's very clear though when we look at a life there is this sense that we all deserve to live a certain length of time and if we have then it feels pretty fair you know if someone says this person was 90 and they lived to be 95 or 98 that feels nice but we feel very differently than if they're two and we can at least let them live till five or six and even that still will feel very unfair but there is a sense that that life should be given or each person should be given that chance to live a certain length of time. And so, again, I think it brings back some of the ways we value life or put a value on the life that someone has gotten the chance to live. And that's why most of us would think if you're an adult and you sacrifice your life for a child, that was the right thing to do. We really don't uh, consider it much of, well, does that child deserve more or who was the child? We don't get into that. Or who was the adult? We think of these things, even when we uh, traditionally it was women and children first, for example, let's say if you're watching Titanic and it's who's getting on the lifeboats, women and children first. Now, maybe the, the women part, maybe some people will see differently and that's a different discussion. But the children part, most people would say, absolutely, that makes sense. Children should be given the opportunity to continue living. It's almost like they're right and it's our duty and responsibility to take care of them as adults. But just um, because I was reading this book about what is life, it had me reflect a bit on some of these ways that we look at life and what we value, but that ultimately, to me, a fundamental human value is to put great value on human life. That, And that might sound obvious, but it isn't always the ways we take action in taking care of others and making sure others are okay and making it primary. When we are faced with it, face-to-face, eye-to-eye, people will say that. If I say, oh, this person is starving, should we give them money to eat? People, if they're looking at the person suffering, will almost always give what they can instantly. But if we talk about taking care of poor children and then price tags come in again, the economics uh, factors become more important, people might think, well, we don't have enough money to take care uh, of, of those people or take care of all those people. All of a sudden, um, people might have a different reaction to it or they might not take that action to value them. So I think it's important for us to keep this in mind that the ways we approach life can matter and just some thoughts on how we look at life and how we value it. And also, as I was saying, the ways that it's, it is a complex thing, this book, What is Life? It seems like a simple question or why would it be so complex? But we can see how perplexing it is for us when we reflect on life and death and how to put value on that and what it means for something to be alive. And if we try to think of something not being there, how we, we interact with it. But to me, this basic principle that when someone is alive, whether or not you thought the person should have had the, the pregnancy or not, so that question comes up. And I think it's Besides the point, it's about once the life is here, we will always take care of it. We will always take care of each other. That can be 
a type of guiding principle that what is life, that can be hard to define. But when we look at human life and we understand it as being a human life, we value it. What is the value of that human life? We should put that as a very great value. That brings us to the end of tonight's show, but we're having some issues technically, so I don't know if we can actually um, get to the end of the show. Um, Again, the book today was What is Life by Paul Nurse. There we go. Um, Let's get to the end of the show. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadir Halakwi, Zan Zandigi Azadi. (laughs) 